Kia ora, and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my daily podcast that goes out with an email newsletter via Substack for paying subscribers. Although this morning, I've decided to open this up immediately to all, including those who are on the free subscriber list. Because paying subscribers uh, ensure that I can do a whole bunch of public interest journalism on housing unaffordability, climate change in action, and child poverty reduction. And I try wherever possible to make it available to the public, at least, if not immediately, then at, at a later date, once um, subscribers have said they'd love to see it made more widely public. And in recent times, they've been saying, you make the call, uh, put it out early. The reason I'm doing this uh, rare thing of putting it out to everyone immediately is that uh, I did a little thought experiment last night on Twitter in which I asked the question, if we didn't have what we think are the financial constraints or the political constraints to various climate change actions, what would a true climate emergency response look like? You've got to remember that the government's net debt at the moment is just on 21% of GDP. And the current forecasts are that it will drop to under 15% of GDP in the next four years. Now, last year, the government set a new net debt limit of 30% of GDP. And that is significantly lower than other countries that have a similar credit rating than us. The reason I point this out is that often there's a perception that there is no money to invest in all sorts of infrastructure. Uh, however, that's not true because the government has the ability to borrow money and there is plenty of demand for that debt. By doing that, you effectively are able to build infrastructure now, not have to pay for it all now, and spread the cost out over multiple generations. And it ensures that that infrastructure is built, or the actions taken to ensure that in future generations we have a more resilient country. So, debt is not an issue, in part because even with the current forecasts and the current limit of 30% of GDP, we have about $60 billion in debt capacity there because of that debt track currently going down to 15% of GDP. So 15% of GDP is about $60 billion. No one's expecting, of course, that you'd raise it all tomorrow and try to spend it the day after that. You'd simply create a lot of inflation. But what you would do is create the resource for a longer-term plan. If you were to have, for example, a bipartisan agreement on how to respond to Cyclone Gabriel and to build more resilient infrastructure to adapt to climate change, but also to reduce carbon emissions and get to net zero much quicker. So I asked the question, thought experiment, if there were no financial constraints, and remember we've still, even with the current financial constraints, we've got 60 billion there, and there were no political constraints, and I'm talking here about political campaigns against the likes of ute taxes or so-called war on cars or even the most recent one which is the 
anti-vaxxers who've pivoted to being climate deniers saying that somehow 15-minute cities are some sort of um, global government plan to restrict freedom, which is as far from the truth as you could possibly get. But certainly those are the political constraints. And we've heard these arguments by the opposition, various members of the opposition, that various measures to shift from petrol and diesel-fueled cars to uh, cycling, walking, electric cars is in effect a war on cars. And uh, there's also been uh, complaints about the move towards densification on the grounds that it might make uh, flooding worse, although of course you can of course design a densification to ensure with uh, retention tanks and spongy city techniques such as permeable walkways and roads that you can actually improve your climate resilience. So I put out the, a, tweet, a tweet and got back more than 100 responses from people that were constructive and useful. There were a bunch that weren't, but uh, certainly there were plenty of useful responses. And today I have included um, an, an edited list of the sorts of things that we could do if we were serious about treating the uh, climate emergency as an actual climate emergency. All the lists is there. You're welcome to have a look at it. And I invite paying subscribers who are able to comment in, uh, in the kaka to um, add their suggestions. Now, in the coming weeks and months, I'll be going through the list and looking at the various pros and cons, potential costs, unintended consequences, and um, how, how they all fit together. Because lots of ideas, some of which may work against each other, and some that may actually be worse off than doing nothing. And uh, the broad sweep of these suggestions are a much faster shift from petrol and diesel-powered personal transport to public transport, cycling, walking, and fast trains. Also a move towards 15-minute cities where densification allows a much greater use of public transport, walking, and cycling, along with the redevelopment of these cities so that they are spongy and avoid the sorts of worst results of unplanned uh, infill housing and sprawl that we saw in Auckland and elsewhere over the last month or so. Now, all of these things are also dependent on moving as fast as possible to do all these things. And um, one of the interesting problems we face in the next few years is how to get a bipartisan approach on this. There's obviously talk in the last couple of weeks of a more bi bipartisan approach. But to be frank, I think that won't last very long once the memories of Gabrielle and Hale start to fade. But there is a deal that could be done. On the centre-right, there is a reluctance to fund massive public transport projects. They are seen as distracting, expensive, frustrating, complicating, messy, 
and uh, in the end, waste. And to be frank, there is an element of truth in many of those accusations. In particular, the types of big public transport projects that are currently on the plans for both Auckland and Wellington. Where in Auckland, the government's preferred approach at the moment is to build a railway line from the CBD, so downtown Auckland, all the way to Auckland Airport at Mungary. But to do it with two massive tunnels, instead of doing light rail down Dominion Road. This is a problem because it takes much longer. It involves much more construction work. Digging those tunnels means that New Zealand has, in theory, the most expensive public transport projects in the world per kilometre. That's purely about the spending plan for big, big tunnels. Same in Wellington where there are two tunnels planned in the Let's Get Wellington Moving project. The problem for both of them is that they are very carbon intensive in the first five to ten years. That means they delay the shift in traffic from roads, petrol, diesel, to public transport. And uh, they also cost an enormous amount, which um, puts pressure on construction costs and simply delays the transition. One deal you could offer to achieve the combined aim of reducing emissions, improving resilience, and doing it faster as well as cheaper would be to say no more big tunnels, a very fast mode shift from roads to cycleways and pathways, mostly by converting various lanes of existing roads and motorways to walkways, cycleways, busways. Massive investment in buses, the introduction of fast light rail lines with permeable roads, and a massive focus on densification of urban development in a climate-friendly, spongy way. That would be significantly cheaper, faster, and manage the transition, particularly from personal transport. To, from from uh, diesel and petrol vehicles to walking, cycling, and buses. That is one way in which you come up with a political settlement for something like this. Now, the various other suggestions, in particular, focused on a mass rollout of solar, the creation of microgrids, and the use of solar, particularly in regional areas, to create resilience. The idea being, of course that by having lots of solar panels on roofs, not just homes, but warehouses, dairy sheds, the likes, with batteries, that when the mains power gets shut off, you have options to keep going, not just to charge your phones, but to run your dairy sheds and to ensure that people have power. As we've discovered, uh, we had nearly a quarter of a million people at various points in the last two weeks who were without power. There's still tens of thousands in Hawke's Bay and in Gisborne without power. And the way that that restricts communications as well as the ability to get on with daily life has uh, been a real wake-up call. So the creation of solar-powered microgrids that are able to not only uh, reduce costs but improve resilience and 
if done at a large enough scale, help avoid uh, the uh, use of coal and gas to generate electricity. The ability also to sell power back into these microgrids, from these microgrids into the national grid, is useful at proper rates. We currently have an electricity market which discourages that sort of local generation of solar power that's sold back into a grid. And um, the use of and creation of uh, larger batteries, if you like, in which to store energy built up during the sunny days so that when it does rain, we still have the ability to use electricity. This is all very necessary if we're going to move our transport fleet and our industrial use of fossil fuels to electricity. The electrification of New Zealand will require massive solar rollouts. It will also require TY Point to be shut down. And that's a crucial thing right at the moment where there's fresh negotiations between Rio Tinto, the owner of TY Point, Meridian, at Contact, Genesis and Mercury to uh, continue production of aluminium at TY Point. Remember, it uses 12% of New Zealand's power supply and it's all renewable from the Manapuri station. It could, in theory, be used to generate hydrogen, which would be useful in trucks and on ships. However, um, we now have much better connections from Manapuri into the rest of the national grid to move that electricity around. Although, again, it's at the bottom of the South Island when most of it's needed at the top of the North Island. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is just the start, really, of a look at what a true climate emergency response that is funded from the Crown's balance sheet that involves a bipartisan agreement and that is targeted at very fast and active moves to zero emissions and to do it in a climate resilient, adaptive way. Again, I welcome your suggestions in the comments below from paying subscribers. And if you're not a paying subscriber and you're listening to this maybe for the first time, I'd welcome you to come on board as a paying subscriber. Aki te anu.